Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today, we want to talk about impact. Now, who of us don't need to have more impact, especially in our communication? And I'm going to bet if you've been getting feedback, particularly at this time of year around things like raise your visibility or speak up more in meetings or have more impact on what you say, then today is the episode for you. And we're going to do this at a very practical, what do you do to put your, to make yourself more comfortable with your communication, with your influence, and with your impact? My guest today is Richard Newman. Richard is the founder of Body Talk. And over 21 years, his team has trained over 100,000 business leaders around the world to improve their communication and impact. And including one client who gained over a billion dollars, U.S. dollars, in new business in just one year using these strategies. If that doesn't keep you listening, I don't know what will. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, uh, Wanda. Real pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure. So, I, you know, I always start everybody asking the same question, why? And what I want to know is why does this topic matter to you? What do you care? Like, what's the problem you see that you wanted to solve? Yeah, great question to start off with. So uh, for me, I, I've dedicated my life to uh, working on uh, researching and teaching communication. Uh, and this really matters to me because of really three major areas. So I care deeply about human connection, uh, not just communication, because there's a lot of people speaking a lot, but there's not a lot of uh, connection happening. Uh, secondly, really caring about human compassion. And this is something that we need so much right now uh, with this pandemic that we've been through, with the separation of people, uh, a sense of compassion for other people and connecting with them going together. And finally, wanting to make sure that people get the results that they really deserve. So I hate seeing people stifled by feeling they are held back with their skills, where they've got brilliant ideas and so much expertise and education behind them and things that they want to move forward and not being able to get those results. And just to break it down a little bit more about why this drives me so much. So firstly, this point of human connection. This is something that I've been driven by really since I was about four years old. I was, I was aware of something happening back then that I only really made sense of about 40 years later. And so when I was four years old, nearly five, I, I moved schools and I went from a place where I felt settled to a place where I was aiming to make new friends. And I was trying to uh, build relationships and say hello to people around the table where I was at my new school and just noticed I I'm not connecting here. I'm not doing something. There's other kids here making friendships and uh, having banter with each other. And I don't seem to be able to do that. Maybe there's, there's something wrong with me or there's something different about me. I started to notice I had a bit of a different lens on life. And I noticed this all the way through going up through school, through high school, that I was seeing the world from a slightly different perspective. And it was only very recently that I got uh, diagnosed with um, autism spectrum disorder, so high-functioning uh, autism. 
uh, as it's sort of known. It's not a clinical diagnosis, but that's how people uh, refer to it. And suddenly when I got that, it felt strange to get this so late in life, but it suddenly made sense of what I'd been searching for all this time, which is the key to connection with other human beings. So what I would always do through my life is when I saw other people interacting and it was going well or going badly, I'd be analyzing what is it about this that is allowing the communication to be successful or not. I was reading books on this. I've run, read hundreds of books on this topic, but it also drive, drove me then to go out to uh, slightly unusually at 18 years old to go off to India, live in a Tibetan monastery and teach English to Tibetan monks. And what drove me to do that is I thought before I go into further education, I really want to do something good for the world and help people with connection and help them ha- have a voice. And there was these uh, Tibetan monks who were in the foothills of the Himalayas in India who were Uh, in exile from their own country, and they really needed to be able to communicate with their community. And the big challenge being when I got there, they didn't speak any English. So I had to use body language and tone of voice to connect with them, to, to really be understood by them and to help teach them English. And by the end of six months, they'd learned how to have a good conversation with me in English. And I'd really learned some valuable lessons again about that sense of human connection. What is it that we can do verbally and non-verbally to connect and build a relationship beyond words? Uh, and that's what I've taken into the work that we do today with clients is to help them get past the graphs and the bullet points and the spreadsheets and the, and the processing that happens in corporations back to that real sense of connection with each other. And, and that compassion piece is that so much of what I see with human communication at work is that people are focusing uh, on themselves rather than focusing on the other person. They go into a meeting thinking, I want to say this, I have this goal, this is what I need to do. And so the communication really falls down. So for me, communication is about the other person, but particularly right now, doing it compassionately. There's many people, I think, uh, really masking over challenges that they have with stress, with trying to deal with the disruption that's happened in their personal lives and disruption that's happened maybe for their family and and dealing with occasionally homeschooling their children and needing to look professional while they're looking after their dog in the background. Uh, And people are really trying to do the best that they can, but it's important to approach communication with that compassion, thinking, what is it that this person might need from me right now Uh, and seeing the best in, in them. And just, you know, to summarize that, making sure that people get the results they deserve too. I'm not about some kind of wishy-washy, fluffy, let's all be nice to each other. I want to make sure that you get the results that you deserve, any person. And the way to do this is firstly to really understand communication, but also understand that phrase that if you want to go fast, then go alone. But if you want to go far, you need to go together. And to do that, it takes the connection, the compassion and focusing uh, on others. So, so maybe a long answer to the why question, but it's what's driven me on this sense of a mission around this subject for so many years. I get your sense of passion with it. There are so many pieces of that, what you just said that I want to pick up on and kind of dig before. Before I do that, let me give, I just love this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, you've got to go together. And that means something about speed and about interaction and connection. And I couldn't agree with you more about compassion. All right, let me come back to you now realize that your four-year-old was on the autism spectrum. And I can imagine there are a whole bunch of other people out there who say, me too, or my kid, or how, or I've got somebody working for me who I think might be, et cetera. 
And I suspect that comes as a bit of shock to people to realize that even with this challenge, I don't know if I should call it a challenge or an advantage, you can still learn the skills of human connection. Mm. Can you just say a little bit more about what that journey has been about for you or how have you gone about doing that? Uh, yeah. So yeah, firstly, I absolutely agree that there are so many people uh, in this situation who just wouldn't realize it. And it also, it tends to be from my limited knowledge in this, uh, that women are more prone to have a diagnosis later in life of this than men, because they do a much better job of sort of masking it and figuring out how to have good interactions uh, than men do. So that tends to be the case. So, you know, if, if this is something that you suspect, I encourage people just to go and get, uh, you know, an official diagnosis on this but not to have it as something that you see as a limiting label, because I certainly don't. I really genuinely see this as an incredible superpower. And the way that it it comes up for me is that uh, people who have uh, autism can communicate really well with each other. And people who are neurotypical, which is most people, they can communicate really well with each other. But it's only when there's the back and forth between those two areas (laughs) that there suddenly becomes a challenge. Uh, And so... For me, I've always used that as an opportunity to learn and to grow. I never want to see anything as like a label to say, oh, well, well, I can't do this because I have X. I always think, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, what does that give me? What is the, the special perspective, therefore, that I bring? And I would always see that as well. If you've got members of your team or even members of your family, rather than seeing it as, well, that could be a limiting factor, just think that's another part of having diversity in a team, of having people with unique perspectives on the world because they can see something that other people can't. So uh, as an example of this, so in my uh, relationship with my wife, we've been together 20 years and she's incredible with people and always has been. And I am much better at sort of planning, logistics, uh, getting things in a row. And, and we we line up really well with each other, just leaning on, okay, you've got this perspective and, and I don't expect her to be the, the sort of super organized person that, that I would end up being. Uh, but she's got great skills I don't have. So I can always observe her and think, wow, how does she do that? I could learn something from this. I could lean on her. She's, she and I make a great team. So I would look at it from that perspective and think, what are you bring to a team? What do other people bring to the team and embrace that diverse perspective? Okay. That is a wonderful view. And I'm sure a lot of people are thrilled to hear that view. And I love your say the neurotypicals can do reasonably well together. In fact, we can all do reasonably well communicating with people who are just like us in many facets, but Mm -hmm. we rarely do very well communicating with somebody who's not like us. And, and this is a pretty, um, Strong difference to measure. Okay, so let's dig into this notion of connection. All right, totally buy you that compassion is important and that you're focusing on the other in communication. What does that person need from me? But I want the sense of connection. What is it that you think creates connection? So th- there's there's many ways that we could talk about with connection. Uh, sometimes people talk about this in terms of uh, finding. Uh, values that connect you together. So not just, you know, the the process and the procedures that you're going through day after day, but a a shared sense of values, some sense of commonality, that can be a piece. Uh, When I'm working with leaders, though, we tend to go into the, the area of lift by talking about, you know, what is it 
that is really going to help you right now to feel connected with people who, some of whom you may have, you may have hired people on your team who you haven't even met in person. And you can be working with them like that for a long time. There are people on my team, it, it was a year before I'd actually seen them face-to-face for the first time, just doing this uh, through Zoom. And so what do, we, what do we need right now? What do we need in terms of connection? Well, there's, you know, there's been a, a mass exodus from people sort of leaving the workplace, particularly in America, saying, actually, I don't know if I don't feel connected with anybody here. I don't feel like I'm, I'm cared about. I don't feel like I'm part of the uh, uh, sort of something meaningful or purposeful. I don't feel connected, so I'm going. And so I would suggest that for, for leaders uh, who are listening, that a, a good way to create that connection is see the greatest version of the people around you and really care about who that human being is, not just what they're presenting in a meeting where they may feel uh, under pressure, they may feel stressed out, they may have major deadlines, but see that greatest version of them and do everything that you can to encourage that part of them to come out. So for example, if you think of people who you feel deeply connected with in your life, then Often we can think of somebody, maybe when we were younger, somebody who really believed in us. So often it may be a grandparent, it may be a mentor of some sort, who they had a special connection with us because we felt heard, we felt seen by them, and we knew that they could see a greater version of us than perhaps we even believed in ourselves. And so this is where I uh, talk to people about this concept of lift, which is to approach each person seeing the best version of them and, uh, and also being able to take people in a situation from a negative state or maybe a neutral state across to a more positive or useful state for them. So not manipulating people through your communication, not doing any sort of manipulation tactics, which I see other people teaching as sort of communication strategies, which never work long-term because it's going to destroy trust. So it's, it's about that sense of if everybody approaches work thinking, I am here to make sure that I am elevating others through the service or the product that we have or through the way I interact with my team, that's going to make the best possible company culture. And so people will feel more connected with each other, not just because they know, okay, here's the mission and here's what we're aiming to do and here's the plan for that. But actually there's a sense of human beings who want to be together. Okay. As I think about my closest friends, people who've been friends for years and years and years and years, I have a very positive view of them. I see really wonderful qualities in them, and I trust that they do the same for me and that we bring out those really wonderful qualities in each other. That Mm. doesn't mean that I also don't see some things that are, you know, yeah, I can see how that might bother people, but I don't focus on that. I focus on these wonderful qualities. And Mm. I think you're right. That friendship, that depth, that real connection comes from seeing the best, seeing something good, really good, and valuing that something really good and encouraging and supporting it and so on. Mm. Okay. Now, I know also, though, lots of leaders who believe it is their job or whose tendency is to point out what's wrong. So Mm. they correct the mistakes. Mm. And so you end up, when you're interacting with those leaders, feeling criticized. Mm. So, you know, you're advocating bringing out the best. How do we merge these two together? I still need to give some feedback, but how do we make this work? Uh, right. So some really good issues to bring up here. So firstly, I would agree that, you know, we want to spend time around people in our personal lives who 
we, we believe they see a good version of us. We, that, that makes us feel good. Um, and, uh, you know, true friends are also those people who, when we're moving away from the best version of ourselves, they are there to encourage us back to that great version. We, we, like a magnet, we feel drawn because of how they treat us, because of how they see us, we feel drawn back to the best version of ourselves. Uh, one piece that made me think of, which is a big theme that's going on at the moment, is that some people have the view of teams or certainly even of friendships of cut the negative people out of your life. So if you feel like that's not a positive influence on you, cut the negative people out. And I think that we all have a responsibility actually to do the opposite because those are the people who need a friend more than anybody else, providing you're not in a position where you're being sort of physically abused or you know, it's a dangerous situation you need to get away from. Those are the people who need our friendship and need us to see the greatness within them such that they can rise up from the darkness that they might be feeling right now. So uh, to take that into a work situation, yes, you may have people working for you who are doing things right now that are not positive for the business, not positive for the team. And uh, the way of dealing with that is not ignoring it or just focusing on the good stuff and hoping it goes away because a problem that gets ignored gets bigger uh, in my experience as a leader. So instead, it's about approaching it from a place where you're not shaming them and you're also not disempowering them, saying you're not good enough at this, therefore I'm giving the job to Bob. He's going to do it instead or I'm going to do it for you. So it's not disempowering them. It's also not being heavily critical as if they couldn't see that for themselves, but empower them in the conversation speak really from the objective facts saying, first of all, this is going well, this is great, and I'm really pleased with this piece. There's this number that's come up in terms of you know, the KPIs, and I wanted to make you aware of it, and I really want to know how do you feel about it right now? Let them feel heard. Let them feel seen. There could be a picture behind that that you're not aware of. And this is not a moment to sort of allow big fanciful excuses to come up, but really show it to them and see the best in them and say, what do you think about this? What do you feel we should be doing about this? If you were in my position, what would you feel is a fair next step step here? So you're allowing them to be part of this rather than saying, you're not good enough. You're bad at this. You can't try again. Uh, I'm telling you what we have to do next. They feel like they're getting an opportunity to rise rather than being squashed. And so that, that allows them to step up to, uh, to the plate in that situation. And that's when you're more likely to get a better version of them coming to work the next day. Okay. So it is about finding the positives, reinforcing the positives, hearing them, you know, pointing out the truth, the facts, the behaviors that are not working objectively, and hearing what they have to say about that, not allowing them to be defensive, not allowing them to get off the hook. But to say, okay, well, now what are we going to do about it? To own some part of the solution of that one. I often mm-hmm. say with people when I'm talking about how to do feedback, that I like the notion of separating the delivery of the message from the solution of the message. So mm-hmm. there's the delivery of the message. This thing is going wrong here is the message. Mm-hmm. But the solution is the individual has to say, you're right. I acknowledge that's going wrong. Now, what do we do? They have to be ready to hear that. And you've got Mm. to get them to a place where they want to hear it. And then you can do all the empowering and planning and 
all that. We mush them to mush those together like it was one constant stream. I don't think it is. I think that's what you're saying as well. Yeah, that's that's a really great take on it. And and also by doing that, it allows them to feel like I'm part of this conversation. I'm here with you, and it gives them a moment to drop the defenses that may be in there. Because if they feel I'm coming into a conversation where I'm going to be told things aren't good enough, here's how you're going to do it next. They're going to feel really resistant, and more defenses come up. But if they feel like okay, I'm getting an opportunity in a safe place here to drop those defenses and be part of shaping that solution. I'm with you and I'm more connected with you. All right. So connection is about bringing out the best version of other people. Okay. So we just did an example around feedback, but how have you seen this working in a company to either change the culture or drive sales or pick any version of that that's your favorite story? Sure. So uh, here's a good one for you. You mentioned earlier that uh, you know one of the clients that we helped uh, to win a lot of money. Let me let me choose a specific uh, client. So there was one client who we we're working with. It's a large American construction company, and they were aiming to win a contract uh, which is which is worth six hundred million pounds. So I'm going to make a guess at eight hundred million dollars, and it was to build a new building on the bank of the River Thames. Uh, the CEO and the sort of the leadership team had flown over from the states. They were in this uh, sort of fancy uh, glass building in uh, near, near the Thames, where we were coaching them. And myself and my team coached them for about three days. The CEO only joined on the last day, and as we were rehearsing, getting ready for this, they'd been working towards this pitch for about eighteen months, going through various different stages, and they got to the point they knew they were in third place out of three potential people who are going to get the job. And uh, so they came in to, to get our help because they really needed it in that last point. And so I, I watched the CEO. I said to him, like, get up for us and show us what you're going to do tomorrow. Let's work through this. And he started. And after about five minutes, I thought, I'm going to have to stop him because if, if, if he does this tomorrow, they're finished. And I thought, I haven't got time to do it any other way. We were running out of time that day. And I said, I really need you to stop. Just tell me, do you think you're going to win tomorrow? And he looked at me as if to say, I wish you hadn't asked me that question. And everyone in the room looked at me like, nobody interrupts our boss. What are you thinking of? And they all looked at him as if to say, should we throw him out? We don't mind. And he said, okay, honestly, no, we're going to lose. And I said, okay, well, tell me why you're going to lose. He said, I'll tell you why, because somebody on the decision-making panel has uh, taken umbrage with this guy over here on our team. And uh, frankly, I'm sick of it. And we're going to go in there and show them how good we are and what they're missing out on. And I said, okay, let's just pause on that. If you go in there, just pause and really objectively think about this. If you go in with that feeling, what is the chance that you're going to win? And he said, well, we're not, we're just not going to win. I said, so what if we could work on this to get you to a place where you do win, where you come out on top? Would that be worth just a five-minute conversation? And he said, say what you want to say. So I said, here's what it, it feels like a little bit, is that you're saying you know, they have got something against a member of your team. So that sort of feels like this person on your team is being treated like the victim of the situation. And he said, yeah, I think you could say that. Maybe even the company is the victim. Yeah, my company is the victim. I said, so does that mean that the panel is the villain in the situation? He said, well, I suppose you could say that. I said, that, that really seems to mean that you feel that perhaps you're the hero of the situation. You're swooping in here to do that. And I'm sure you know, people listening may be familiar with the hero, victim, and villain triangle that we sometimes get caught up in. And I said, you know, coming in 
as the hero in the situation. And I'm sure that you're brilliant at doing so many things. That's where you've got to where you are at this stage. But coming in like that can be disempowering to the team and makes them not look as good in the situation. But also, if you think the decision maker who you want this huge deal from is a villain, we all know that's not going to work. So, so would you be open to doing something else? And he said, okay, well, how do I do that? I said, what if we reposition this? That in fact, you're not the hero and that the panel is the hero in the situation. How would you feel about that? And he said, okay, well, how, how do I even do that? I said, okay, so you're the mentor in this situation. You are the mentor. Think Yoda, think Gandalf, whichever version you like, Dumbledore, whatever you want. You are the mentor in the situation. So you're still in a high status advisory role. And he started to think, okay, I quite like this. I like the sound of this. And I said, they are really the hero. They've got a massive challenge. They've got a hole in the ground that needs to turn into a 600 million pound building. And they just don't know who to decide. And they spent 18 months trying to figure this out. And you could come in here as a mentor in the situation, seeing the challenges that they face, seeing how stressful this is for them, seeing how overwhelmed they are by the situation and mentor them from there to a place where they feel elevated by you being in the room. So you can lead them to a better future. How would that be? And suddenly we started this conversation about exactly how through the power of storytelling that we were working on with this team, that that could be uh, an, an outcome by shifting the way that the people in the room were thinking and feeling about the future and, uh, and feeling empowered in the decision that they were making and the team would feel empowered to be a part of that. And as a result of that, you know, I'm very pleased to say that they went from third place to first place. They won this massive deal. So there's many situations like that that we work on shifting a major event for a company, but it's always nice for us when there's, you know, there's dollars that come out of it for them. So it's a definitive decision. It's also nice when there are large numbers of dollars or pounds in this particular case, that even feels better. Okay. It's interesting that you say this because I have been doing lots of work with people lately, getting them to think about their mental image of their role particularly their role as a leader. You know, are you the hero? Are you the taskmaster? Are you the, you know, right into the last minute? And so there's all sorts of versions of images we carry in our head, Yoda or whatever, <laughs> Darth Vader, even for that matter. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what do you see? But this shifting of your image in, in a way that allows you to elevate, to give other people the best version of themselves, I think is what you're driving at in this connection. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, uh, you know, we're, we're very passionate about teaching people storytelling and all the power that that can have in a one-to-one situation, conversations, emails, in, in every situation. And then it's also about deciding who am I going to be within that story? Uh, what part of me needs to show up. So, so often people think, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to do next in this situation. I don't know how to fix this problem. I don't know how to help that person be better. I don't know how to hit these numbers. But it's really the wrong question. The right question is not how am I going to do this or what should I do? The, the right question is who do I need to be? What part of me needs to show up today? And then by leaning into that side of yourself, that side of your mindset, if you like, it allows you to tap into greater resources, different ways of thinking by playing into this. And too many of us really get stuck in those roles of thinking, okay, well, uh, I've always been the person who uh, eases the tension by making people laugh. So I guess maybe that's who I am. But in certain situations, that's not going to work out. That's not going to get you the result that you need. And so instead of being trapped 
in certain habits or routines and saying, that's who I am. It's not who you are. There's vast potential that every human being has. We need to break away from the habits that you had yesterday and last week and just say, what version of me could show up in all the potential that I have? And let me drive in that direction. It gives you an opportunity for personal growth and also a shift of mindset that is more likely to lead you to the success that you're looking for. This reminds me of a very senior executive female um, in the U.S. who in financial services who has said that we are many different people. And if you just mm. think about how I behave with some friends, with different friends, with family, with my team, with we've got many different facets of ourselves, many, many, many different facets. Mm. And her comment was, it's a matter of deciding what part of me to dial up today or for this meeting and what part of me to dial back for this mm. meeting. So yes. what am I amplifying and what am I de-emphasizing to find that authentic, but still real version of me? Yeah. Same idea. Yeah. And I, I think that this is where, you know, great actors really compel us to watch them and watch them again and again and again, because they are really finding a part of themselves that resonates with the character that they represent. And that's what makes it feel real. They're not pretending to be that person. They're really connecting with that part of themselves. And I would encourage people to do this uh, every day. And it's something that I've learned through parenting as well. With, with my kids, sometimes I need to be the cuddler. Sometimes I need to be the storyteller. And sometimes I need to be the rock in the storm and just make sure that they know everything's going to be okay. And the same goes with our clients. You know, often I'll get booked as the keynote speaker at an event and the event organizer will come up to me and say, right, we're putting you after lunch. Uh, on day four of this financial conference and uh, do what you can to energize the room. So I think, okay, I've been booked as the energizer. I know how to do that. Other times they'll book me and say, look, we're in a serious situation. The culture's not working. You know, people have been made redundant. We don't know what to do next. And in that situation, I'll think, okay, I need to be the rock in the storm in this situation to let them know that there is a safe place here to discuss things and to move forwards. So we've got so many facets of ourselves. So I think deciding which part shows up in each meeting each day is an opportunity to, to grow and, and fulfill that potential too. Okay. All right. This is, wow, fascinating. I am dying to ask, how do I get there? And how do I read the room to know if I don't have somebody telling me that's there? So this is a perfect place to take a break. And we'll come back to answer exactly those questions. My guest today, Richard Newman, and he's the founder of Body Talk. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. 
Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Richard Newman. He's the founder of Body Talk. And we have been talking about Richard's, I'm going to say philosophy almost, let alone his practice of what it takes to really succeed. And the watchwords are human connection, human compassion to get the results you deserve. The general notion, the core concept is lift, that what you want to be doing is helping people be the best version of themselves. And that is the source, I would argue, of inspiration. It's the source of connection and compassion. And by the way, it's what gets people to rise to the occasion to want to do a little bit better to show up tomorrow, to feel a little more engaged, connected, committed, whatever the words are. Not bad for your talent retention strategy either, by the way. Um, So if the notion is to lift, to have people be the best version of themselves, part of that has to do with who do I need to be today in order for them to show up in the best part. Now, before you think that's inauthentic, we've got tons of parts of ourselves, tons. So what is it? Who is it that I need to be today? Do I need to be the hero? Do I need to be the taskmaster? Do I need to be the rock in the storm? Do I need to be the storyteller? Do I, what do I need to be today to get people to be the best version of themselves? Okay. So Richard, I'm sold on this. You've got me. I believe it's going to work. Now I need to know what other skills do I need? How do I, I mean, is that all? What else? Great. So there's there's a whole uh, toolkit of skills that we share with people here. You know, everything that we work on with people, which is you know sort of sixty hours worth of stuff that we sometimes go through. Uh, but let's let's break it down and make it really simple. Firstly, if you think about it, if you want to help someone else become the best version of them, you can't go into the room as the worst version of you and try and make that happen. So. Uh, you know, many people will be familiar, I'm sure, with the idea of put your own oxygen mask on first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're told to do this, even though, you know, if you're in a plane, you've got loved ones nearby, you put your own oxygen mask on first. And, you know, people see that as a message within personal development. And I agree with this. But here's the thing. Some people I see have taken this maybe a little bit too far where they say, you know, I'm putting my own oxygen mask on first for the next 10 years while I work on my health and I work on my finances and I make investments and I've got a whole real estate portfolio. But at that that point, the plane's in the ground and everybody's died. So that's just too long. 
So we've got to find a way to be able to center ourselves, to be the best version of ourselves, to show up in those meetings. And this may involve for you doing things such as uh, meditation in the morning, exercise in the morning, having a solid morning routine. And for me, the morning routine starts the night before. Don't wake up, set the alarm and go, okay, I'm going to try and do a morning routine. For me, the night before, I'm already planning out what is the day ahead? What time do I need to be at that first meeting? So what is my me time before that? So I'm going to get to the place where I show up with the best possible mindset for the first interaction uh, that I'm having with people. And then during the day, you can take up the concept of mini breaks. Don't just think, okay, and now I am set to go for the next 10 hours, because that's what great super achievers and CEOs are supposed to do. Instead of that, you've got to realize, I used to work with a Formula One team and you've got the best car in the world and it's, it's pulling in every 25 laps or something just to have everything checked. And so it's important to do the same thing for yourself. Have little mini breaks, even if it's a few minutes to think, okay, I'm going to let that meeting settle. I'm going to get ready for the next one. Where do I need to be? And then going into there. Another piece I like to share with people before you go into meetings, if you know, okay, this one's going to be a big one to get to be the best version of yourself. There's some great science on this. There was a study done in Germany back in 2015, which was looking at uh, how people respond under pressure. And they put them through a job interview situation and uh, they all believed they were going for a real job, their dream job situation. And the panel before they went in were told, don't say anything nice to them. You can't nod your head. Instead of that, you need to shake your head, sit back, fold your arms and say not good enough. Then halfway through the meeting, you're going to tell them to stand up and do a presentation, tell them it's not good enough, and then give them complicated maths questions. And so the whole time they're trying to design this highly stressful situation. And half of them, when they left, they measured before and after their cortisol levels, their heart rate and their adrenaline. For half of them, all of these were spiking at the end of that, uh, that situation, as you might expect. But for the other half, there was no change. And what they did for that half is before they went into the interview, they said to them, just write down a page about your personal values. What is it that you care about? What are the principles that you live your life by and why do they matter to you? And so they're really going inwards for internal validation. So when they went into the meeting five minutes later, they weren't seeking external validation or trying to get the right response from the other person. They had internal validation. And that meant that they were feeling super cool in the situation. But what was more important, I think, and I, this is so rare to see this in one of these scientific experiments, is that when they asked the panel afterwards, choose 15 people, 15 names of people you would give the job to if you had to. And it was 100% correlated. The people who'd focused on internal validation and their values before they went in, not only felt better, but got the results. So as a leader, you can do this so easily before you go into a meeting. It takes a little bit of homework first. Just take five, 10 minutes to jot down, what are my key principles? What do I care about? When I look at myself in the mirror, what am I proud of about how I live my life? And then focus on those have reasons behind them. And then you can turn that into like little um, anchor words. So secret code words, if you like, that for you instantly bring you back into that. So for me, as an example, uh, I uh, have one of my values as being a good father, but that's kind of generic. What does being a good father mean? My code word for it is polar bears, because my sons and I have a game we play called polar bears where I'm doing everything I think a good father would do. Survival skills, having fun, the whole works. And so if I think about that, I'm focusing on internal validation. I go into the meeting, I'm centered inside myself. And then when I go in the meeting, I don't focus inside, I focus outside. 
And the out external focus is not for validation. It's for a sense of what do I want these people to know? What do I need them to do? But importantly, how do I need them to feel so that we get an outcome that is good for everybody here? So you're focusing outwards, which takes away a sense of being self-conscious. You're putting all your focus outwards then on those people and then therefore being better able to read that room to see what is happening rather than thinking, I've got to focus on me and the gestures that I wanted to make and the words that I wanted to say. You're fully connected with them from a place of being calm and centered. Then within that, what you can do is to really making sure that you're engaging people, you are taking them with you here. Uh, We talk about storytelling, but we talk about this being something that is uh, done with connection, not just a matter of I've created a really lovely PowerPoint that's 200 slides and it's got a great story. So sit back and let me uh, go through this because, you know, we work with clients in the um, in sort of the world of marketing and PR, and we've heard horror stories from them where they created what they thought was a beautiful slide deck. And on slide three, they could see the client just shaking their head thinking these guys have missed the mark and they just keep going because that's the slides they've got. So you've got to take people with you on that story, make it interactive, ask them questions that bring them with you and just judge where do we need to go? Like a choose your own adventure. You know the arc, you know the full outcome, but you're bringing them with you Uh, as you do this. But particularly what that does, if you're really going to lift people and allow the best version of them to show up and of you, we've got to be engaging people through the modes of survival mind and the emotional mind and the logical mind. And so by engaging all parts of the human, we're going to avoid that sense of uh, death by PowerPoint or screen fatigue, as it's now called when it's all that death by PowerPoint has moved onto our laptops. Uh, and we're truly engaging the human, not just engaging with people as human doings, but human beings. And so we're bringing them uh, with us as we go through that process of lift. I love that. Not as human doings, but as human beings. <laughs> I love that one. That's a fabulous expression. I'm going to steal it from this point forward. So the survival mind, the emotional mind, and the logical mind. I have a story arc and have the phases I know I want to go through, but I adapt to where I think the audience is Mm. and so that I'm engaging all three of those minds. All right. Logically, I am 100% with you. Richard, some audiences make it darn near impossible to know where they are, particularly if you're the third presentation of three in a pitch so how do you have people read the audience? How, where, where do we, what does this, how do you do this? Great. So really good question. So I'll put it to you from a couple of perspectives. Firstly, uh, I've run a business that I'm very proud of uh, that I founded 22 years ago. Uh, we've grown every single year, uh, even during the 2008 recession, where my dad, who's an investor, he rang me up that year. He was ahead of the game. He knew that the recession was coming. And he said, just to let you know, uh, every company uh, that deals with you know training is really going to they're going to have uh, their problems with clients saying we can't afford it at the moment and anything that includes the name body talk is going to be seen as fluffy nonsense and you won't get any work for a couple of years just so you know and I said well thanks for thanks, the pep Dad. talk Dad that, that's great <laughs> uh, but as it turned out uh, we still grew that year and we grew phenomenally the year after when people who had their budgets held back wanted to come back and work with us and we continue to grow even during the pandemic where. I'm in a live events business. 70% of our work used to be done overseas, getting on an airplane, going across to Australia and working across Asia, the Middle East, all sorts of places. All of it was done with people face-to-face. And when the pandemic and the lockdown hit, 
every single booking was lost. And so we had to go on a pitch frenzy. And so the piece of advice I'd give to people here is we have never, ever during the course of 22 years shown up with a brochure and a slide deck to a pitch. And it's amazing <laughs> the power of this. What we do is we show up with a blank piece of paper and we, I, I go in as the mentor and position myself that way. I think, okay, you're a hero whoever I'm speaking to, which means you have challenges right now. You've called me in because you have challenges and you have goals. And I'm going to ask you questions that allow us to go from the challenge across to those goals. And I'll talk to you about the journey that we could go on together that would get you to exactly where you want to be. But the whole thing is interactive. And because uh, doing this allows me to get them to talk more in a genuine way. I'm not just asking them questions to get them to talk. They really feel heard in a way that they don't feel heard with others. They feel there's an emotional investment. There's a genuine concern for them and an absolute tailoring around their needs rather than a guess. And so by doing that, we move together and we have built rapport and a relationship with each other by the end of that meeting because of taking them on that journey. So, so that's part of it. But then uh, about specifics around reading the room, and this is an important one. Uh, somebody asked me once, you know, how do you feel about doing public speaking when there's like a, a large audience? And it used to be something that would make me feel uh, nervous, but actually now for me, it's like pure meditation. It literally feels like being a surfer on the ocean. You go out into the ocean on your board and some days the ocean's going to feel choppy and some days it's going to give you complete stillness and other days it gives you beautiful waves and you need to feel the ocean. You can't just bash it and go, right, today I'm going to ride a huge wave. Well, the wave is either there or it's not. You've got to feel the ocean, feel the room. There's a few little things that you can do uh, in order to make sure that you are reading the room, because I know that some people want you know, really specific tactics and ideas uh, on this. And sometimes people have said to me, well, well, virtual meetings have meant it's harder to read the room. It really isn't. Actually, it really isn't. Because uh, where you used to in a boardroom, you used to have maybe you know 20 people around a space. And in order to read them, you had to turn your head and physically look around and people are like three meters away from you. Whereas now we've got people maybe a foot away from our face. And if you make the, uh, the screen so small enough, this is what I tend to do with this. If there's a lot of people on a meeting. I bring up everybody's sort of camera uh, position right near my webcam so I can easily scan around them. I can see a dozen faces right there, and I can read all of them very close. And so there's a few things that you can look out for in face-to-face -face situation or virtually. So one key thing is to look out for hand-to-face touching, hand-to-face touching. What do I mean by this? So if you're, if you're listening to this, I'd like you to try it. If you place your hand to your chin, it looks like the classic thinking position. So there's slightly more activity happening in the mind than there was before. So someone's really thinking, taking on board information. It's not when the face goes to the hand. So suddenly they're, they're bored in this position. It's when the hand comes up to the face. So that's important difference. But notice this, as the hand gets higher on the head, the level of activity or stress in the mind is getting higher. So if your hand goes up to your cheek, suddenly there's panic. Hand goes to the forehead, serious worry, and hand to the top of the head, all hell has broken loose. And so if you notice this, when you're watching people's videos or you're in person, just notice, is the hand coming up to the face? And if so, there might be a level of stress about something that's just been said. It might be worthwhile just reflecting, what did I say in the last 30 seconds? And let me draw John or Sheila into the conversation at this point, just to see if there's something that I've 
missed or something that didn't hit the mark. So it's always worthwhile doing that. Now, look, bear in mind, some people have an itchy head and some people might have hay fever, so they're rubbing their nose. You don't have to stop every time and go, hang on a second, you rubbed your nose. What does that mean? You're stressed. So it's, it's not that. You've got to really do this sensitively with compassion and just check in, say, oh, hey, uh, did, did you have any thoughts on this, Ali? Anything there? No, okay, let, let's keep moving on. So hand-to-face touching, blink rate. Now, this is a great one. Blink rate is much easier to read now that we're in so many virtual meetings. The average blink rate for people is about six times per minute. It depends on who you look at, but roughly six times is uh, the general measure. So that's once every 10 seconds. If someone's blinking more rapidly than that, it means, uh, easy way to remember it, rapid blinking equals rapid thinking. So uh, sometimes people associate this with, oh, the person's lying. It doesn't necessarily mean that. You need to look for a whole other pattern there. It just means rapid thinking. So if you're explaining something complicated and you see people, you notice them, and you see there's a lot of rapid blinking going on, it might mean you need to slow down. You're just going way too fast or people need you to explain it with a better analogy so that you keep them on board. Pause, check in with them uh, at this point. Uh, and, and further to that, uh, you just want to be making sure as you go through that you are truly facilitating a meeting. The days of wanting to see someone in a boardroom, stand behind a lectern, put up a slide deck and point with a laser it's, it's gone. Nobody wants that. Nobody's thinking, do you know what I really need today is a 60 slide presentation with 400 bullets. Nobody ever thinks that. They think I want to be heard. I want to be seen. I want to know what I need to do. I want to be taken on that journey. So make sure that you're, you're bringing them with you uh, as you go. I love that. Hand to face. Now, I must talk to dozens of people with body language, and we always talk about you shouldn't touch your face when you're speaking because that's a signal of nervousness, of self-soothing. But I had never heard anybody say that when somebody brings their hand to their face, lower down, thinking, higher up, oh dear, all the way as I go higher, all the way touching my head, it's like, oh my gosh, get me out of here. This is a disaster. I've never heard that before. I love it. And I can imagine it takes somebody with an incredible focus to detail to pick that up. It's awesome. Yeah, so it's been a good one for me to spot just to really check in with people. Right. The um, what is interesting about this one is, you know, and this applies whether I've got an audience of hundreds or an audience of two or an audience of 10, 20, anywhere in that, these are all applying. But you see in this kind of concentration on the room how important it is to be centered on yourself, to be calm in yourself, to be clear about what your messages are, about what role you're playing in that day, what the story arc is that you want to take people on, what questions you're going to ask could ask at any given moment in order to get there. If that planning isn't done and the centering isn't done, then I don't think you have the capacity to tune in to the blink rate and the hand movements. You agree with that statement? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. If if you're going into a meeting where you're unprepared, uh, you're feeling off balance uh, as it is, you've sort of hurriedly put together a slide deck that you haven't actually looked through and you're not quite sure how to make sense of it at this point, uh, then absolutely, you're, you're going to be going in flustered, uh, maybe just feeling slightly jittery from having too much coffee that day or whatever you've been using to try and get through. So it does come from a place you do need to be centered in yourself first, which is why I say to people, getting that right before the meeting is absolutely critical. You can do this also through working on your breathing and making sure that you're fully connected to your breath feeling present in the moment. And I I do this, I've done this for a long time, where initially when I used to get introduced, 
to about to go on stage to a thousand people. And I, I do these events where I'll, I'll be in front of a thousand people. It's just me and the audience for three and a half hours. And I've got a flip chart. And so I think there's nowhere to run at that point. Uh, if I've forgotten to go to the bathroom, then there's going to be a challenge for the, <laughs> the client in the room. So I've really got to get it right. And so my heart would start to beat and I'd feel off center, but I would work on my breathing to get to the point where you want to move away from the sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight across to the parasympathetic nervous system, fastest way to do it. You can do it with your eyes open or closed. If I get the chance, I maybe close them. And I might do this during like a really busy virtual meeting day. I get like 11 meetings a day at the moment, sort of put in the calendar. And you can just close your eyes or not and be doing slow, deep breathing, uh, box breathing or square breathing. I like to do where it's nice and steady to lower the heart rate and get yourself to the place you need to be. So you feel present and you feel in that state of rest and digest, and then go into the situation. It only takes 90 seconds to do it, and it's worth just being slightly late for that Zoom meeting so that you've got that piece. You are centered, and then you go. Yeah, and how hard is that to do on the and all the virtual meetings when you're going back to back to back to back, and the technology doesn't work, and that's going to raise your heart rate level, and then you haven't had time to think about it, and you didn't get your cup of coffee or whatever, and pretty soon you're out of control. And mm. so just those few minutes to kind of reconnect. Okay, yeah. Richard, I have this distinct feeling that I could ask you for the next three days to give me more tips and more advice and more tips. And you said you have 60 hours of this. So two minutes, if there's anything else you want our audience to know about how to lift, how to connect, how to have compassion, what's the one thing you want to say? I think the, the most important overriding, uh, overriding piece on this is to have complete commitment, to really go for it. You can't do this as a manipulation strategy. You can't do it half-heartedly. It has to be all in. Uh, and to do that, of course, you need to center yourself first. But this means just dropping anything that is uh, armor, that is a poker face that you're taking into a situation to make sure that people see that you are really there. The body language, the voice, everything that you say, the questions that you ask, the listening that you're doing back for people is true and real so that none of it is done as a strategy. It is really, truly done, centered on that mission to connect with people with compassion, see their greatness and have a, a, an important connection with them in that communication, whether that's a meeting or, or a conversation. You've got to go for it. You can't go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ask the right questions here. And um, I will want to lift them, but I'm not changing my body language. I'm just going to look like the normal poker face that I'm always, that everything has to work. You've got to throw yourself into that with complete commitment uh, because otherwise people will sense the hesitation and they won't want to connect with you. So really throw yourself into this completely. And if it helps you, you know, sometimes you work with people where they're, they're just blocked as they go into a meeting, they are in that sort of corporate rigid monotone, safe way with the armor on of communicating. And we might say to them, right, like before you go in there, just come and read this, read, read a speech given by JFK or Churchill or read a children's book. Just bring your voice out, pretend it's not you and allow yourself to see the expansiveness of all the facial expressions and tone of voice that you've got, all the rest of your personality coming out. Make sure that the people in that room see that part of you, not just the safe version, because that's what's going to really connect them with you, make you see, seem charismatic as a communicator because you're really, truly, fully uh, all in for that moment. It comes back to this notion of you say what you really believe as opposed to what you believe you should say. 
Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So I get that sense through all of that one. All right, Richard. Wow. So much in this particular episode that I think is simple to say and a lot harder to actually practice. I'm bought in to the concept on lift that if as a leader, as a speaker, as a communicator, as a person in an organization, if I let the people that I'm with, or I see the best self of the people that I am working with, that's going to lift them. That's going to allow me to connect and connect with compassion. And the discipline of seeing the best in other people takes a start with seeing the best in myself, which is why all the self-centered validation, et cetera, and then a focus outward on that other. Um, That strikes me as a worthy practice and something that is counter to what we traditionally do and something we all need to work on day in and day out to get better at. So, Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. a pleasure having you here. My guest today is Richard Newman. He's the founder of Body Talk. As you can tell, he's based in the UK. Um, if you like this episode, please like us on your favorite podcast um, server. And if you want to learn more about how to apply these concepts and others, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And definitely join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.